dragged by horses through fly-ridden bogs and swamps. Burgoyne epitomized the snobbery rife among the British officers. If anything, he believed that the British had shown too much clemency toward the American upstarts. I look upon America as our child, he had said in 1774, which we have already spoiled by too much indulgence. The original British battle plan for severing New England from other rebel colonies had envisioned Burgoyne's force from the north converging with that of Lieutenant Colonel Barrymore Saint-Leger from the west and General Howe from the south. Instead, with Howe in Philadelphia, Burgoyne found himself fighting alone, isolated in the upper Hudson Valley against Patriot troops led by General Horatio Gates. Burgoyne's surrender of his entire army of 5,700 men at Saratoga in mid-October was the pivotal moment of the war, a victory so large, so thrilling, and so decisive that it emboldened the wavering France to enter the conflict on the patriotic side. The victory meant that Washington could siphon off some of Gates's troops to strengthen his own shaky position to the south. The Continental ranks had been thinned by the expiration of one-year enlistments, a recurring problem. Not long after receiving the wonderful news from Saratoga, Washington summoned a war council of five major generals and ten brigadiers, with Hamilton drafting the minutes. Word had begun to make the rounds that this young aide was far more than some docile clerk. Benjamin Rush, a radical Pennsylvania congressman, grumbled that Washington had allowed himself to be governed by General Green, General Knox, and Colonel Hamilton, one of his aides, a young man of twenty-one years. At the meeting, the generals agreed that Gates must transfer a hefty chunk of his troops to Washington, since the Saratoga victory had drastically curtailed the British threat in New York. The emissary chosen to impart this most unwelcome piece of news to Gates was Alexander Hamilton. It is remarkable that Washington would have drafted his young aide for such a tough assignment. After Saratoga, Horatio Gates was the hero of the day, the darling of New England politicians, and this only deepened the mutual antipathy between him and Washington. Gates had even snubbed Washington by refusing to inform him directly of his victory. Thus, Hamilton's mission was fraught with a multitude of perils. From a general at the zenith of his popularity, he had to pry loose a sizable number of troops and, to do so if possible, without issuing any orders. Hamilton would have to ride three hundred miles and then bargain with Gates without any further opportunity to consult with Washington. Clearly, the imperious Gates would feel demeaned by having to negotiate with a diminutive twenty-two-year-old. Hamilton would need to tap all the cunning and diplomacy in his nature. To invest Hamilton with a suitable aura of power, Washington drafted a letter to Gates in which he introduced his aid and defined his mission to lay before you a full state of our situation and that of the enemy in this quarter. He is well informed, and will deliver my sentiments upon the plan of operations now necessary. The discretion delegated to Hamilton was impressive. If Hamilton found Gates using the requested troops in a manner that benefited the patriotic cause, it is not my wish to give any interruption, Washington wrote. If that was not the case, however— it is my desire that the reinforcements before mentioned be immediately put in motion to join this army. If there was a single moment during the Revolution when its outcome hinged on spontaneous decisions made by Alexander Hamilton, this was it. Instructions in hand, Hamilton rode off to Albany at a furious pace, covering sixty miles a day for five consecutive days, riding like a man possessed. 
En route, he stopped on the eastern shore of the Hudson at Fishkill and lectured General Israel Putnam on the need for him to shift two brigades southward to help Washington. Hamilton did not shrink from exercising his own judgment. Acting on his own initiative, he induced Putnam to promise an additional 700 members of a New Jersey militia. He explained to Washington that, I concluded you would not disapprove of a measure calculated to strengthen you, though but for a small time, and have ventured to adopt it on that presumption. Eager to move on, he told Washington that a quartermaster was pressing some fresh horses for me. The moment they are ready, I shall recross the Hudson River in order to fall in with the troops on the other side and make all the haste I can to Albany to get the three brigades there sent forward. The instant Hamilton arrived in Albany on November 5, 1777, he arranged a hasty meeting with Horatio Gates. For Hamilton, it was Benedict Arnold, not Gates, who had merited the real laurels at Saratoga. He regarded Gates as a vain, cowardly, inept general, and subsequent events were to bear out his scathing judgment. With gray hair and spectacles set low on his long-pointed nose, he was later derided by his men as Granny Gates. The heavyset Gates was a much less imposing presence than Washington. The illegitimate son of a duke's housekeeper, he had studied at British military academies and fought in the French and Indian War. Now swollen with pride from his victory, Gates was reluctant to cede any of the brigades under his command. Instead of listening meekly, Hamilton spoke to Gates in a firm tone and told him how many troops he should spare. Gates retorted that Sir Henry Clinton, British commander in New York, might still march up the Hudson and endanger New England. As a sop, Gates finally agreed to send Washington a single brigade, commanded by a General Patterson, instead of the three Hamilton had stipulated. After the meeting, Hamilton snooped about and discovered that Patterson's 600-man brigade was by far the weakest of the three now here, as he then wrote candidly to General Gates. Under these circumstances, I cannot consider it either as compatible with the good of the service or my instructions from His Excellency General Washington to consent that that brigade be selected from the three to go to him. Hamilton was careful to be neither too forward nor too deferential, as he skillfully blended his own opinions with those of Washington. I used every argument in my power to convince him of the propriety of sending troops, and exasperated Hamilton, told Washington, but he was inflexible in the opinion that two brigades at least of Continental troops should remain in and near this place. Hamilton later reproached Gates for his impudence, his folly, and his rascality. It irked Gates that he had to negotiate with this cocksure, headstrong aide. In a draft letter to Washington, Gates crossed out an allusion to Hamilton that showed just how much he seethed over the situation. Although it is customary and even absolutely necessary to direct implicit obedience to be paid to the verbal orders of aides-de-camp in action, or while upon the spot, yet I believe it is never practiced to delegate that dictatorial power to one aide-de-camp sent to an army three hundred miles distant. In the end, Hamilton extracted a promise from Gates to surrender two of the brigades he wanted. It was a bravura performance by Hamilton, who had shown consummate political skill. During the tense impasse with Gates, Hamilton tarried long enough in Albany to see his old friend Robert Troop and dine at the mansion of Philip Schuyler. Having preceded Gates as head of the Northern Department, General Schuyler felt cheated of the Saratoga triumph for which he had laid the groundwork. General Nathaniel Green seconded this appraisal, calling Gates a mere child of fortune 
and asserting that the foundation of all the northern success was laid before his arrival there. During this visit to Schuyler's mansion, Hamilton met, for the first time, the general's second daughter, twenty-year-old Eliza, a relationship that was to resume more than two years later. After his exhausting talks with Gates, Hamilton headed back down the Hudson, only to discover that his mission was not over. Having stopped at the home of New York Governor George Clinton in New Windsor, he was taken aback to find that two of the brigades promised by General Israel Putnam had been withheld. A bluff, jowly farmer and former tavern-keeper from Connecticut, Putnam was much beloved by his aide, Aaron Burr, who referred to him as my good old general. It was Putnam who supposedly told his men at Bunker Hill, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes, then fire low. When Hamilton saw that Putnam had reneged on his promise, he sent him a letter throbbing with anger. Hamilton cast aside the usual caution of an aide-de-camp and delivered a tongue-lashing to a veteran officer more than twice his age. Sir, I cannot forbear confessing that I am astonished, and alarmed beyond measure to find that all His Excellency's views have been hitherto frustrated, and that no single step of those I mentioned to you has been taken to afford him the aid he absolutely stands in need of, and by delaying which the cause of America is put to the utmost conceivable hazard. My expressions may perhaps have more warmth than is altogether proper, but they proceed from the overflowing of my heart in a matter where I conceive this continent essentially interested. Hamilton had to issue direct orders to Putnam to send all of his Continental Army troops, that is, minus state militia, to Washington immediately. The fault was not entirely Putnam's, however, for the two brigades had not been paid in months and, mutinously, refused to march. Having gone out on a limb, Hamilton expressed great trepidation in his reports to Washington that he might have exceeded his authority. It was, therefore, deeply gratifying when Washington sent him an unqualified endorsement of his work. I approve entirely of all the steps you have taken, and have only to wish that the exertions of those you have had to deal with had kept pace with your zeal and good intentions. As in Philadelphia in September, Washington had given his wunderkind huge autonomy, and the gamble had paid off handsomely. The young aide-de-camp was revealed as a forceful personality in his own right, not just a proxy for the general. For Hamilton, his encounters with the two obdurate generals strengthened his preference for strict hierarchy and centralized command as the only way to accomplish things a view that was to find its political equivalent in his preference for concentrated federal power instead of authority dispersed among the states. The frantic rides up and down the Hudson damaged Hamilton's always fragile health. On November 12th, he wrote to Washington from New Windsor to explain his delay in returning. I have been detained here these two days by a fever and violent rheumatic pains throughout my body. Despite his illness, Hamilton continued to direct the movement of troops slated to join Washington and went downriver to Peekskill to apply maximum pressure on Putnam's brigades. There, in late November, a haggard Hamilton climbed into bed at the home of Dennis Kennedy. It seemed uncertain whether he would recover. In a letter to Governor Clinton, Captain I. Gibbs wrote that he feared that the combined fevers and chills might prove mortal. On November 25th, he reported that Hamilton seemed to have all the appearance of drawing nigh his last, being seized with the coldness in his extremities, and he remained so for a space of two hours, then survived. On November 27th, when the chill again invaded his legs from feet to knees, 
the attending physician thought he wouldn't last. However, he remained in this situation for near four hours, after which the fever abated very much, and from that time he has been getting much better. Hamilton had been so blistering in dealing with General Gates that not everyone welcomed his recovery. On December 5th, Colonel Hugh Hughes wrote to his friend General Gates, Colonel Hamilton, who has been very ill of a nervous disorder at Peekskill, is out of danger, unless it be from his own sweet temper. Right before Christmas, Hamilton set out to rejoin Washington, only to collapse again near Morristown. He was taken back in a hired coach for further rest in Peekskill, where he was nourished on a hearty diet of mutton, oranges, potatoes, quail, and partridge. Not until January 20th, 1778, did Hamilton rejoin his colleagues at winter quarters in Valley Forge near Philadelphia, a bleak place that could scarcely have elevated the spirits of the convalescing colonel. Such was the inimitable luster of Horatio Gates after Saratoga that it was whispered in certain quarters that he ought to supplant Washington as commander-in-chief. The unhappiness with Washington was understandable. His military performance in New York and Philadelphia had been lackluster, and his setbacks at Brandywine and Germantown were fresher in people's memories than his spirited raids at Trenton and Princeton. The rivalry between Washington and Gates mirrored a political split in Congress. John and Samuel Adams, Richard Henry Lee, and others who wanted tighter congressional control over the war were sympathetic to Gates. In his diary that fall, John Adams had expressed dismay over Washington's generalship. Oh, heaven, grant us one great soul. One active, masterly capacity would bring order out of this confusion and save this country. Though he did not endorse Gates outright, Adams fretted that idolatry of Washington might end in military rule, and he was glad when the Saratoga victory cast something of a cloud over the commander-in-chief. Meanwhile, John Jay, Robert R. Livingston, Robert Morris, and other conservatives wanted to invest great executive power in the commander-in-chief and stood solidly arrayed behind Washington. One of Gates's avid partisans was a moody Irishman named Thomas Conway, who had been educated in France, had served in the French army, and had joined the Continental Army that spring. Hamilton made no secret of his contempt for the new brigadier general. There does not exist a more villainous calumniator or incendiary, he wrote. Conway aired freely to Gates his low opinion of General Washington's military talents and wrote to him after Saratoga, Heaven has been determined to save your country or a weak general and bad counselors would have ruined it. Gates did not muzzle such treacherous talk. When a copy of this letter came into Washington's possession in November, he sent Gates a terse, angry note, quoting the line that referred to him and demanding an explanation. Caught red-handed, Gates tried to deflect attention from his own disloyalty by searching out the culprit who had leaked the letter to Washington. His colleague, Major James Wilkinson, floated the idea that the conduit had been Robert Troop. Gates, recalling his testy exchanges with Hamilton, decided that Washington's young aide was the blackguard. Colonel Hamilton was left alone an hour in this room, he told Wilkinson, during which time he took Conway's letter out of that closet and copied it, and the copy has been furnished to Washington. Gates now embarked on a vendetta against Hamilton, still at this time recuperating in Peekskill. Gates said that he had adopted a plan which would compel General Washington to give Hamilton up so that the receiver and the thief would be alike disgraced. On December 8th, 
Gates wrote a tactless letter to Washington with a thinly veiled accusation against Hamilton. I conjure your excellency to give me all the assistance you can in tracing out the author of the infidelity which put extracts from General Conway's letters to me into your hands. Those letters have been stealingly copied, Gates informed Washington, stating that it was in his power to do me and the United States a very important service by detecting a wretch who may betray me and capitally injure the very operations under your immediate direction. It turned out that Hamilton was blameless and that the source of the disclosure was the raffish James Wilkinson, who had fingered Troop and Hamilton. While carrying dispatches to Congress, Wilkinson, a flamboyant character with an incurable weakness for liquor, intrigue, and bombast, had paused for alcoholic refreshment in Reading, Pennsylvania, and told an aide to Lord Sterling about the Conway letter to Gates. Lord Sterling then relayed the news to his friend Washington. Hamilton never forgot Gates's attempt to blacken his reputation. I am his enemy personally, he wrote two years later, for unjust and unprovoked attacks upon my character. Whether an actual conspiracy, the so-called Conway Cabal, ever existed with an explicit intention to displace Washington has long been fodder for historians. There was clearly some movement afoot, a loose network of critics, who wanted to replace Washington with Horatio Gates, even if they never entered into a formal pact. At first it looked as if the cabal might succeed. In late November, Congress had appointed Horatio Gates president of the Board of War, which acquired new powers to supervise Washington. In mid-December, over Washington's protest, Conway was promoted to inspector general. Hamilton now believed that malevolent conspirators menaced Washington. Since I saw you, he wrote to George Clinton, I have discovered such convincing traits of the monster that I cannot doubt its reality in the most extensive sense. Countervailing forces had already begun to rein in the Conway conspirators. In early January 1778, Hamilton's dear friend John Lawrence alerted his father to a design against Washington. Henry Lawrence, now President of Congress, assured his son, I will attend to all their movements and have set my face against every wicked attempt, however specious. In the last analysis, Washington's popularity was unassailable, and the blatant scheming of his foes only solidified his reputation for integrity. By April 1778, Congress gladly accepted Conway's resignation as Inspector General. Horatio Gates gradually lost his reputation on the battlefield. In the aftermath of the cabal, both Conway and Gates faced challenges to duels. James Wilkinson turned on his mentor and challenged Gates, but when the latter broke down and cried apologetically, the duel was called off. Because Conway persisted in maligning Washington, he was summoned to the dueling ground by General John Cadwallader, who fired a ball through Conway's mouth that came out the back of his head. Cadwallader showed no regret. I have stopped the damned rascal's lying tongue at any rate, he observed as his opponent lay in agony on the ground. Somehow Conway managed to survive, but his career in the Continental Army was definitely over. Chapter 6 A Frenzy of Valor When Hamilton, debilitated from illness, rejoined his comrades at Valley Forge in January 1778, he must have shuddered at the mud and log huts and the slovenly state of the men who shivered around the campfires. There was a dearth of gunpowder, tents, uniforms, and blankets. Hideous sights abounded. 
snow stained with blood from bare, bruised feet, the carcasses of hundreds of decomposing horses, troops gaunt from smallpox, typhus, and scurvy. Washington's staff was not exempt from the misery and had to bolt down cornmeal mush for breakfast. For some days past, there has been little less than a famine in the camp, Washington said in mid-February. Before winter's end, some twenty-five hundred men, almost a quarter of the army, perished from disease, famine, or the cold. To endure such suffering required stoicism reminiscent of the ancient Romans, so Washington had his favorite play, Addison's Cato, the story of a self-sacrificing Roman statesman staged at Valley Forge to buck up his weary men. That winter, Hamilton worked alongside Washington in the stone house of Isaac Potts, whose iron forge gave the area its name. Snappish and depressed over the Conway Cabal and unsettled by the wretched state of his men, Washington was more temperamental than usual. The general is well but much worn with fatigue and anxiety, Martha Washington told a friend. I never knew him to be so anxious as now. Washington sometimes vented his rage at Hamilton, and tensions crept into their relationship. Hamilton yearned for a field command, but Washington could not afford to sacrifice his most valuable aid. It was Hamilton, after all, who wrote many of the pointed pleas to Congress asking for urgently needed provisions, and the young aide shared Washington's frustration. For God's sake, my dear sir, Hamilton wrote to one colonel when authorizing him to collect wagons, exert yourself upon this occasion. Our distress is infinite. Hamilton began to meditate on the deeper causes of the surrounding misery. Because the colonies had been forced to rely on England for textiles, the patriots lacked clothing. Because the colonies had relied on England for munitions, they lacked weapons. Hamilton also saw in graphic terms the inflationary dangers of printing too much paper money. Forced to accept at face value the depreciated paper issued by Congress and the states, farmers and merchants balked at selling food and clothing to the army and often ended up hawking their wares instead to the well-fed, well-clad redcoats carousing in Philadelphia. The situation at Valley Forge was scandalous. American soldiers were starving in the midst of fertile American farmland. Hamilton was also sickened by the bungling commissary department. He wrote to New York Governor George Clinton in mid-February, At this very day there are complaints from the whole line of having been three or four days without provisions. Desertions have been immense and strong features of mutiny begin to show themselves. It is indeed to be wondered at that the soldiers have manifested so unparalleled a degree of patience as they have. If effectual measures are not speedily adopted— I know not how we shall keep the army together or make another campaign. Hamilton cast a critical eye on the whole revolutionary effort. However upset by profiteering, he knew that the central weakness of the Continental cause was political in nature. In his letter to Clinton, he scoffed at the rank favoritism shown by Congress in showering promotions on every petty rascal who comes armed with ostentatious pretensions of military merit and experience. Unable to enforce its requests for money and troops, an impotent Congress was reduced to begging from the states, which selfishly hoarded soldiers for their own home guards. The only way the Continental Army could lure soldiers was through expensive cash bounties and promises of future land. The Republican partiality for state militia in lieu of a strong central army threatened to undermine the entire revolution. 
The disillusioned Hamilton also struggled to fathom why a Congress that had once boasted such distinguished figures was now glutted with mediocrities. Where had the competent members gone? Hamilton concluded that the talent had been drained off by state governments. However important it is to give form and efficiency to your interior, that is, state constitutions and police, he told Clinton, it is infinitely more important to have a wise general counsel. You should not beggar the councils of the United States to enrich the administration of the several members. Such statements presaged Hamilton's later nationalism. Ironically, George Clinton became his bête noire, exemplifying the very parochial state power against which he invade. Hamilton, just turned 23, was already spouting civics lessons to state governors. His views were also solicited by his commander-in-chief. When Washington had to report to a congressional committee about a proposed army reorganization, he sought his aide's advice, and Hamilton enumerated a long list of abuses to be curbed. He urged that officers who overstayed their furloughs by ten days be court-martialed, recommended surprise inspections to keep sentries alert, and even prescribed the manner in which they should sleep. Every man must have his haversack under his head and, if the post is dangerous, his arms in his hand. Hamilton also displayed an unbending sense of military discipline and seemed something of a martinet. Any dragoon who allowed another person to ride his horse without first notifying the inspector general should receive one hundred lashes for such neglect. That Hamilton already contemplated America's political future was evident in March, when Washington assigned him to negotiate a prisoner exchange with the British. Having already questioned many British and Hessian deserters, Hamilton was a natural choice for the job and was joined by his former Elizabethtown mentor, Elias Boudinot, now the Commissary General of Prisoners. Some in Congress not only opposed negotiations, but wanted them to fail so that Britain could be blamed. Shocked by this duplicity, Hamilton wrote to George Clinton, It is thought to be bad policy to go into an exchange. But admitting this to be true, it is much worse policy to commit such frequent breaches of faith and ruin our national character. Hamilton saw America's essential nature being forged in the throes of battle, and that made honest action imperative. Shortly after Hamilton penned his report on army reorganization, a Prussian soldier with a drooping face and ample double chin appeared at Valley Forge. He billed himself as a German baron and acted the part with almost comical pomposity. Although the baron and the honorific Vaughn were likely fictitious, Frederick William August von Steuben came from a military family and had served as an aide to Frederick the Great. He came to America at his own expense and waived all pay unless the patriots triumphed. Washington appointed him a provisional inspector general with a mandate to instill discipline in the army. Since Steuben's English was tentative at best, he relied on French as his lingua franca, bringing him into immediate contact with the bilingual Hamilton and John Lawrence, who acted as interpreters. Though Steuben was forty-eight and Hamilton twenty-three, they became fast friends, united by French and their fondness for military lore and service. Soon Steuben was strutting around Valley Forge, teaching the amateur troops to march in formation, load muskets, and fix bayonets, and sprinkling his orders with colorful goddams and plentiful polyglot expletives that endeared him to the troops. Wrote one young private, Never before or since have I had such an impression of the ancient fabled god of war as when I looked on the baron. 
He seemed to me a perfect personification of Mars. The trappings of his horse, the enormous holsters of his pistols, his large size, and his strikingly martial aspect all seemed to favor the idea. Steuben overhauled the Army's drill manual, or blue book, and created a training guide for company commanders, with Hamilton often recruited as editor and translator. Hamilton eyed the drillmaster with wry affection. The Baron is a gentleman for whom I have a particular esteem, Hamilton said, though he chided his fondness for power and importance. He never doubted that Steuben had worked wonders for the elan of the Continental Army. "'Tis unquestionably due to his efforts that we are indebted for the introduction of discipline in the army," he later told John Jay. On May 5, 1778, Steuben was recognized for his superlative efforts and awarded the rank of Major General. During the winter encampments, Hamilton constantly educated himself, as if equipping his mind for the larger tasks ahead. Force of intellect and force of will were the sources of his success— Henry Cabot Lodge later wrote. From his days as an artillery captain, Hamilton had kept a paybook with blank pages in the back. While on Washington's staff, he filled up 112 pages with notes from his extracurricular reading. Hamilton fit the type of the self-improving autodidact, employing all his spare time to better himself. He aspired to the 18th-century aristocratic ideal of the versatile man conversant in every area of knowledge. Thanks to his paybook, we know that he read a considerable amount of philosophy, including Bacon, Hobbes, Montaigne, and Cicero. He also perused histories of Greece, Prussia, and France. This was hardly light fare after a day of demanding correspondence for Washington, yet he retained the information and applied it to profitable use. While other Americans dreamed of a brand-new society that would expunge all traces of effete European civilization— Hamilton humbly studied those societies for clues to the formation of a new government. Unlike Jefferson, Hamilton never saw the creation of America as a magical leap across a chasm to an entirely new landscape, and he always thought the new world had much to learn from the old. Probably the first book that Hamilton absorbed was Malachy Postlethwaite's Universal Dictionary of Trade and Commerce, a learned almanac of politics, economics, and geography that was crammed with articles about taxes, public debt, money, and banking. The dictionary took the form of two ponderous, folio-sized volumes, and it is touching to think of young Hamilton lugging them through the chaos of war. Hamilton would praise Postlethwaite as one of the ablest masters of political arithmetic. A proponent of manufacturing, Postlethwaite gave the aide-de-camp a glimpse of a mixed economy in which government would both steer business activity and free individual energies. In the paybook, one can see the future treasury wizard mastering the rudiments of finance. When you can get more of foreign coin, the coin for your native exchange is said to be high and the reverse low, Hamilton noted. He also stocked his mind with basic information about the world. The continent of Europe is 2,600 miles long and 2,800 miles broad. Prague is the principal city of Bohemia, the principal part of the commerce of which is carried on by the Jews. He recorded tables from Postlethwaite showing infant mortality rates, population growth, foreign exchange rates, trade balances, and the total economic output of assorted nations. Hamilton's notes from Postlethwaite showcase his exemplary self-discipline in undertaking private courses of study. 
Like the other founding fathers, Hamilton rummaged through the wisdom of antiquity for political precedents. From the first Philippic of Demosthenes, he plucked a passage that summed up his conception of a leader as someone who would not pander to popular whims. As a general marches at the head of his troops, so should wise politicians march at the head of affairs, insomuch that they ought not to wait the event to know what measures to take, but the measures which they have taken ought to produce the event. Nearly fifty-one pages of the paybook contain extracts from a six-volume set of Plutarch's Lives. Thereafter, Hamilton always interpreted politics as an epic tale from Plutarch of lust and greed and people plotting for power. Since his political theory was rooted in his study of human nature, he took special delight in Plutarch's biographical sketches, and he carefully noted the creation of senates, priesthoods, and other elite bodies that governed the lives of the people. Hamilton was already interested in the checks and balances that enabled a government to tread a middle path between despotism and anarchy. From the life of Lycurgus, he noted, Among the many alterations which Lycurgus made, the first and most important was the establishment of the Senate, which, having a power equal to the king's in matters of consequence, did foster and qualify the imperious and fiery genius of monarchy by constantly restraining it within the bounds of equity and moderation. For the state before had no firm basis to stand upon, leaning sometimes towards an absolute monarchy and sometimes towards a pure democracy. But this establishment of the Senate was to the Commonwealth what the ballast is to a ship and preserved the whole in a just equilibrium. Hamilton was especially attentive to the amorous stories and strange sexual customs reported by Plutarch. He registered in the paybook how in ancient Rome two naked young noblemen whipped young married women during the celebration of Lupercalia, and how the young married women were glad of this kind of whipping as they imagined it helped conception. Hamilton was also intrigued that Lycurgus allowed a worthy man to ask permission of another husband to impregnate his wife, so that by planting in a good soil he might raise a generous progeny to possess all the valuable qualifications of their parents. This same Lycurgus tried to make the married women more robust and capable of vigorous offspring by allowing selected virgins and young men to go naked and dance in their presence at certain festive occasions. For anyone studying Hamilton's paybook, it would come as no surprise that he would someday emerge as a first-rate constitutional scholar, an unsurpassed treasury secretary, and the protagonist of the first great sex scandal in American political history. Restless at his desk, Hamilton longed to spring into combat and found a dramatic chance to do so in June 1778. The direction of the war had shifted in February when the French, heartened by the victory at Saratoga, decided to recognize American independence and signed military and commercial treaties with the fledgling nation. An ebullient John Adams spoke for many Americans when he exulted that Great Britain is no longer mistress of the ocean. As part of their response to French entry into the war, the British replaced General Howe with Sir Henry Clinton as commander of their forces. Hamilton had been unimpressed by Howe's leadership. All that the English need to have done was to blockade our ports with twenty-five frigates and ten ships of the line, Hamilton told a French visitor. But thank God they did nothing of the sort. If anything, he was even less dazzled by General Clinton. One day, Henry Lee broached to Washington an ingenious plan for kidnapping Clinton, who was quartered in a house on Broadway in New York. 
He had a large garden out back, overlooking the Hudson River, where he napped in a small pavilion each afternoon. Lee wanted to sneak men across the Hudson at low tide and snatch Clinton as he dozed. Hamilton spiked the plan with a cogent objection, telling Washington that if Clinton was taken prisoner, it would be our misfortune, since the British government could not find another commander so incompetent to send in his place. When General Clinton learned in mid-June that a French fleet had sailed for America, he feared that it might team up with the Continental Army and entrap his occupation force in Philadelphia. To avert this, he decided to evacuate the city and concentrate his troops in the more easily defensible New York. This meant that a huge British army of 9,000 men, laden with provisions filling 1,500 wagons, the baggage train stretched for 12 miles, would need to troop across New Jersey with perilous slowness. With supply lines stretched dangerously thin, these lumbering British forces would be exposed to the fire of the Continental Army. Washington saw an opportunity to score a telling blow against a vulnerable adversary and highlight the gains made by his men at Valley Forge under Steuben's vigorous stewardship. Washington had survived the Conway Cabal only to have his authority challenged by General Charles Lee, an experienced officer who had been captured by the British in a tavern in late 1776 and had only recently been released after a 15-month captivity. Lee was a thin, quarrelsome, eccentric bachelor who spoke four foreign languages, had lost two fingers in an Italian duel, and traveled everywhere with his pack of dogs at his heels. He had briefly married an Indian woman, leading the Mohawks to nickname him, with good reason, Boiling Water. He was a talented but impossibly temperamental man who believed devoutly in his own military genius. Arrogant and indiscreet, he told Elias Boudinot, that General Washington was not fit to command a sergeant's guard. He also ridiculed efforts made by Steuben and Hamilton to bring professional order to the army. On June 24, 1778, Washington convened a council of war to debate whether to pounce on the retreating British army. Hamilton took minutes. The opinionated Lee immediately poured scorn on Washington's plan, saying the Americans would be trounced by the superior Europeans and that it was foolhardy to court trouble when the French were soon to arrive. Hamilton, who dismissed Lee as a driveler in the business of soldiership or something much worse, writhed quietly. To his astonishment, the officers agreed with Lee's views, and, in a manner, scoffed Hamilton, that would have done honor to the most honorable society of midwives. Washington preferred to operate by consensus, but he decided to override this vote and give orders to strike at the enemy, if fair opportunity offered. Lee refused to serve as second-in-command for what he deemed a misguided maneuver. Only after Washington called his bluff and assigned the position to Lafayette did Lee back down and consent to ride out and take command of the advancing forces. For the next few days, Hamilton, as a liaison officer to Lafayette, was constantly in motion, riding through muggy nights to reconnoiter enemy lines and convey intelligence among the officers. By the night of June 27th, the British were encamped near Monmouth Courthouse in Freehold, New Jersey, with Lee and his soldiers lying only six miles away. Washington ordered Lee to attack in the early morning, unless there should be very powerful reasons to the contrary. Washington, three miles farther back, would then bring up the rear with the Army's main contingent. Hamilton drafted Washington's directive to Lee that night, telling the latter to skirmish with the enemy so as to produce some delay and give time for the rest of the troops to come up.
June 28, 1778, was to be an unforgettable day because of, among other things, the stifling heat. The thermometer reached the high 90s, and some soldiers rode naked from the waist up. During this day, horses and riders alike expired from heat prostration. The battle was supposed to start with Lee taking on the British rear guard. After hearing small arms fire that morning, Hamilton was sent ahead by Washington to scout Lee's movements, and he was stunned by the tumult he found. Far from engaging the enemy, as directed, Lee's men were in a full-blown retreat. Not a word of this had been communicated to Washington. Hamilton rode up to Lee and shouted, I will stay here with you, my dear general, and die with you. Let us all die rather than retreat. Once again the young aide did not hesitate to talk to a general as a peer. Hamilton also spotted a threatening movement by a British cavalry unit and prevailed upon Lee to order Lafayette to charge them. When Washington got wind of the chaotic flight of his troops, he galloped up to Lee, glowered at him, and demanded, What is the meaning of this, sir? I desire to know the meaning of this disorder and confusion. Lee took umbrage at the peremptory tone. The American troops would not stand the British bayonets, he replied. To which Washington retorted, You damned poltroon, you never tried them. Washington did not ordinarily use profanities, but, faced with Lee's insubordination that morning, he swore till the leaves shook on the trees, said one general. America's idolatry of George Washington may have truly begun at the Battle of Monmouth. One of America's most accomplished horsemen, Washington at first rode a white charger given to him by William Livingston, now governor of New Jersey, in honor of his recrossing of the Delaware. This beautiful horse dropped dead from the heat, and Washington instantly switched to a chestnut mare. By sheer force of will, he stopped the retreating soldiers, rallied them, then reversed them. "'Stand fast, my boys, and receive your enemy,' he shouted. "'The southern troops are advancing to support you.' Washington's steady presence had a sedative effect on the flying men. He summarily ordered Lee to the rear and goaded the troops into driving the British from the field. As he watched this legendary performance, Lafayette thought to himself, Never had I beheld so superb a man. Hamilton, not prone to hero worship, was awed by Washington's unflinching courage and incomparable self-command. I never saw the general to so much advantage, he told Elias Boudinot. His coolness and firmness were admirable. He instantly took maneuvers for checking the enemy's advance and giving time for the army, which was very near, to form and make a proper disposition. By his own good sense and fortitude, he turned the fate of the day. He directed the whole with the skill of a master workman. Hamilton's bravery likewise left an enduring image. Famished for combat, he was in a sort of frenzy of valor, Lee contended. He seemed ubiquitous on the battlefield. When Hamilton found one brigade in retreat and feared the loss of its artillery, he ordered them to line up along a fence and then charge with fixed bayonets. Riding hatless in the sunny field, Hamilton was exhausted from the heat by the time his horse was shot out from under him. He toppled over, badly injured, and had to retire from the field. Aaron Burr and John Lawrence also had horses shot from under them that day. So severe was Burr's sunstroke that it rendered him effectively unfit for further combat duty in the Revolution. Suffering from violent headaches, nausea, and exhaustion, and probably irked by his lack of promotion under Washington— Burr took a temporary leave of absence in October. Many people were struck by Hamilton's behavior at Monmouth, 
which showed more than mere courage. There was an element of ecstatic defiance and indifference toward danger that reflected his youthful fantasies of an illustrious death in battle. One aide said that Hamilton had shown singular proofs of bravery and appeared to court death under our doubtful circumstances and triumphed over it. John Adams later said that General Henry Knox told him stories of Hamilton's heat and effervescence at Monmouth. At moments of supreme stress, Hamilton could screw himself up to an emotional pitch that was nearly feverish in intensity. The Battle of Monmouth was not an outright victory for the Patriots, and the British Army escaped intact the next day. Most observers termed it a draw. Still, the ragtag Continentals had killed or wounded more than 1,000 troops, four times the number of American casualties, proving to naysayers that they could perform admirably against tip-top European soldiers. Our troops, after the first impulse from mismanagement, behaved with more spirit and moved with greater order than the British troops, Hamilton rejoiced. I assure you I never was pleased with them before this day. Enraged that Lee had fumbled a tremendous opportunity, Hamilton applauded Washington when he arrested Lee for disobeying orders and making a shameful retreat. Hamilton was an eager witness against Lee during a court-martial that took place at New Brunswick in July under Lord Sterling's supervision. Whatever a court-martial may decide, Hamilton warned Elias Boudinot, I shall continue to believe and say his conduct was monstrous and unpardonable. Among Charles Lee's sympathizers was Aaron Burr, who missed no chance to belittle Washington's military talents. On July 4th and 13th, Hamilton gave damaging testimony at the court-martial, recalling that Lee had taken no measures to stop the enemy's advance, even after being told to do so by Washington. He told of troops fleeing in wild disorder and of Lee's failure to notify Washington of this retreat. In a dramatic finale, Lee cross-examined Hamilton and accused him of having expressed in the field a contrary opinion of his conduct. "'I did not,' rejoined Hamilton." I said something to you in the field expressive of an opinion that there appeared in you no want of that degree of self-possession which proceeds from a want of personal intrepidity. Hamilton further informed the general that there had appeared in him a certain hurry of spirits which may proceed from a temper not so calm and steady as is necessary to support a man in such critical circumstances. It was a curious clash indeed the youthful aide pontificating to a veteran general on the ideal mental state of a field commander. In the end, Charles Lee was found guilty on all counts but given a relatively lenient sentence, suspension from the army for one year. In October, the disgraced general assured Burr that he planned to resign my commission, retire to Virginia, and learn to hoe tobacco. But he did not let matters drop there and he and his minions continued to vilify Washington and even Hamilton for having testified in the court-martial. In late November, Hamilton encountered Major John Skye Eustace, a worshipful young aide-de-camp to Lee and almost his adopted son. Hamilton tried to approach him in a conciliatory manner, even though Eustace was telling people that Hamilton had perjured himself in the court-martial. Eustace later described to General Lee his encounter with Hamilton. Hamilton advanced towards me on my entering the room with presented hand. I took no notice of his polite intention, but sat down without bowing to him. He then asked me if I was come from camp. I said, shortly, no, without the usual application of sir, rose from my chair, 
left the room and him standing before the chair. I could not treat him much more rudely. I've reported my suspicions of his veracity on the trial so often that I expect the son of a bitch will challenge me when he comes. In early December, Lee heaped further abuse upon Washington in print, and John Lawrence urged Hamilton to rebut it. The pen of Junius is in your hand, and I think you will, without difficulty, expose such a tissue of falsehood and inconsistency as will satisfy the world and put him forever to silence. Perhaps because he was a party to the dispute, Hamilton, in a rare act of reticence, declined to lift his pen. Instead, Lawrence challenged Lee to a duel to avenge the slurs against Washington. Hamilton agreed to serve as his second, the first of many such affairs of honor in which he participated. Dueling was so prevalent in the Continental Army that one French visitor declared, The rage for dueling here has reached an incredible and scandalous point. It was a way that gentlemen could defend their sense of honor. Instead of resorting to courts if insulted, they repaired to the dueling ground. This anachronistic practice expressed a craving for rank and distinction that lurked beneath the egalitarian rhetoric of the American Revolution. Always insecure about his status in the world, Hamilton was a natural adherent to dueling with its patrician overtones. Lacking a fortune or family connections, he guarded his reputation jealously throughout his life, and affairs of honor were often his preferred method for doing so. The man born without honor placed a premium on maintaining his. Late in the wintry afternoon of December 23, 1778, Hamilton accompanied John Lawrence to the duel in a wood outside Philadelphia. Lee chose for his second Major Evan Edwards. By prearranged rules, Lawrence and Lee strode toward each other and fired their pistols when they stood five or six paces apart. After Lawrence shot Lee in the right side, Lawrence, Hamilton, and Edwards rushed toward the general, who waved them away and requested a second round of fire. Neither Hamilton nor Edwards wanted Lee to continue, as they made clear in a joint account they issued the next day. Colonel Hamilton observed that unless the general was influenced by motives of personal enmity, he did not think the affair ought to be pursued any further. But as General Lee seemed to persist in desiring it, he was too tender of his friend's honor to persist in opposing it. But no second round ensued. The duel ended with Lee declaring that he esteemed General Washington as a man and had never spoken of him in the abusive manner alleged. For Lawrence, this made sufficient amends, and the four men quit the woods. In their summary, Hamilton and Edwards praised the conduct of the two principals as strongly marked with all the politeness, generosity, coolness, and firmness that ought to characterize a transaction of this nature. How was Hamilton affected by his first duel? He saw two gentlemen who had exhibited exemplary behavior and fought for ideals rather than just personal animosity. The object had not been to kill the other person so much as to resolve honorably a lingering dispute. Both Lawrence and Lee walked away with their dignity more or less intact. Dueling may well have struck the young Hamilton less as a barbaric relic of a feudal age than as a noble affirmation of high honor. It was the last act of Charles Lee's military career. He withdrew from the scene and lived in seclusion with his beloved dogs, first in Virginia and then in Philadelphia, where he died of tuberculosis in October 1782. One possible reason that Hamilton refrained from attacking Charles Lee in print that autumn 
was that he had just administered a stern rebuke to Maryland Congressman Samuel Chase. A signer of the Declaration of Independence and later a Supreme Court Justice, Chase was a tall, ungainly man with a resemblance to Dr. Samuel Johnson, and a face so broad and ruddy that he was dubbed Bacon Face. He could be overbearing and blustered his way into controversies throughout his career. Hamilton had published anonymous diatribes against Chase after noticing that the price of flour needed by the newly arrived French fleet had more than doubled. He claimed that Chase had leaked knowledge of a secret congressional plan to buy up flour for the French to his associates, who then cornered the market. To expose Chase, Hamilton resumed his acquaintance with New York Journal publisher John Holt, who now printed a newspaper from Poughkeepsie during the British occupation of New York. Using the pen name Publius, a lifelong favorite, Hamilton castigated Chase in three long letters in Holt's paper between October and November 1778. Chase did not know the author was an adjutant to Washington. These essays belie the later caricature of Hamilton as a reflexive apologist for business, an uncritical exponent of the profit motive. After pointing to the punishment inflicted on traitors to the patriotic cause, he noted that the conduct of another class, equally criminal, and, if possible, more mischievous, has hitherto passed with that impunity. I mean that tribe who have carried the spirit of monopoly and extortion to an excess which scarcely admits of a parallel. When avarice takes the lead in a state, it is commonly the forerunner of its fall. How shocking is it to discover among ourselves, even at this early period, the strongest symptoms of this fatal disease? The first Publius letter pointed out that greed can corrupt a state and that a public official who betrays his trust ought to feel the utmost rigor of public resentment and be detested as a traitor of the worst and most dangerous kind. In the second letter, Hamilton lapsed into gratuitous calumny against Chase. Had you not struck out a new line of prostitution for yourself, you might still have remained unnoticed and contemptible, he hectored Chase. It is your lot to have the peculiar privilege of being universally despised. In the third letter, Hamilton gave a possible clue to his overwrought style. He was already thinking ahead. The station of a member of Congress is the most illustrious and important of any I am able to conceive— he is to be regarded not only as a legislator, but as the founder of an empire. Hamilton expected that someday the struggling confederation of states would be welded into a mighty nation, and he believed that every step now taken by politicians would reverberate by example far into the future. It was fitting that Hamilton should have mused about America's future greatness in the fall of 1778, for the struggle with the British had expanded into a sweeping transatlantic conflict. Spain had entered the war on the colonial side after failing to regain control of Gibraltar from England. France had also decided to wage war on Britain for reasons having to do less with ideological solidarity with America. It scarcely behooved Louis XVI to encourage revolts against royal authority than with the desire to subvert Britain and even the score after losing the French and Indian War— the French also sought better access to Caribbean sugar islands and North American ports. This early lesson in real politic, that countries follow their interests, not their sympathies, was engraved in Hamilton's memory, and he often reminded Jeffersonians later on that the French had fought for their own selfish purposes. 
The primary motives of France for the assistance which she gave us was obviously to enfeeble a hated and powerful rival by breaking in pieces the British Empire, he wrote nearly two decades later. He must be a fool who can be credulous enough to believe that a despotic court aided a popular revolution from regard to liberty or friendship to the principles of such a revolution. According to his King's College classmate Nicholas Fish, Hamilton had a direct hand in prodding Lafayette to advocate bringing a French army to America. Before Admiral Jean-Baptiste d'Estaing came with his fleet in July 1778, Hamilton played on Lafayette's vanity by touting the merits of having a French ground force with Lafayette as its commander. The United States are under infinite obligations to Lafayette beyond what is known, Hamilton told Fish later, not only for his valor and good conduct as major general of our army, but for his good offices and influence in our behalf with the court of France. The French army now here would not have been in this country but through his means. Hamilton was posted to greet Admiral d'Estaing aboard his majestic flagship and became a frequent emissary to the French. He often served as interpreter for Washington, who did not speak the language and considered himself too old to learn. Hamilton also provided impeccable translations of diplomatic correspondence into French with just the right dash of high-flown language. In this manner, the alliance with France further enhanced Hamilton's stature in the Continental Army. Many French radicals who flocked to the revolution were descended from nobility and were enchanted by Hamilton's social grace, ready humor, and erudition. J.P. Brissot de Warville recalled Hamilton as firm and decided, frank and martial, and later had him named an honorary member of the French National Assembly. The Marquis de Chastelou marveled that such a young man, by a prudence and secrecy still more beyond his age than his information, justified the confidence with which he was honored by Washington. The Duc de la Rochefoucauld-Liancourt observed of Hamilton, he united with dignity and feeling, and much force and decision, delightful manners, great sweetness, and was infinitely agreeable. At the same time, the Duke noticed that some things were so blindingly self-evident to Hamilton that he was baffled when others did not grasp them quickly an intellectual agility that could breed intolerance for less quick-witted mortals. Though Hamilton was adored by the French officers in their royal blue and scarlet uniforms, he also nursed grievances against them. Familiarity bred contempt along with affection. Hamilton deplored many French aristocrats as vainglorious self-promoters who wanted to snatch a particle of fame from the revolution and parlay it into a superior rank at home. He had to endure in silence insults from them about incompetent continentals. The French volunteers, generally speaking, were men of ordinary talents and skills in the military arts, remarked Robert Troop, and yet most of them were so conceited as to suppose themselves Caesars or Hannibals in comparison with the American officers. The self-made Hamilton was offended by favoritism shown toward the French, a situation that demoralized many in the Continental ranks who fought at considerable personal sacrifice. Congress in the beginning went upon a very injudicious plan with respect to Frenchmen, he informed one friend. To every adventurer that came without even the shadow of credentials, they gave the rank of field officers. It often fell to Hamilton to smooth ruffled feelings between the Allies, as when he arbitrated an early dispute between General John Sullivan and Admiral d'Estaing. 
It was the bane of Hamilton's service that he had to draft numerous letters to Congress, requesting promotions for undeserving Frenchmen. If Congress spurned these requests, then he had to apply balm to the wounded suitors through oily compliments. Hamilton once told John Jay that he wrote these letters to shield Washington from the inevitable resentment of rejected Frenchmen. In private, nobody railed more against the preferential treatment of French aristocrats than Hamilton, who was later so freely branded an aristocrat by rivals. At the same time, he saw that an aristocratic class could contain progressive members, and that Republican 